This episode is brought to you by Uber Duber. You're at the airport in a strange town. It's time to choose a shared ride app. Yes, you can go with those other guys and get safely and quietly to your hotel, or you can use Uber Duber, the shared ride service that combines gig transportation with the thrill of illegal street racing. When you opt for an Uber Duber service, your driver will combine your trip with a street race against another driver and rider going to a different hotel. It's a 90 mile per hour white knuckling thrill as you zip through streets, down needle thin alleys, to a point in between your two destinations. Drifting around corners, blowing through stoplights, beating oncoming trains, you don't have to settle for a humdrum experience between point A and point B anymore. You can take a trip to that meeting where you arrive appreciating, maybe for the first time, that you are still actually alive. The losing driver surrenders his passenger to the winner, and he and his original passenger split the new rider's fare. If you lose, you're going to get dropped off at the winning passenger's hotel, so maybe you should plan to engage your new driver for an additional trip. And now our listeners can get a free coupon to take their entire trip strapped to the hood of the car like that girl in the movie Death Proof. The wind in your hair, an unobstructed view, just enter the promo code reread one word in your app when you book your service. This is not an experience that is usually offered by those other services. The gumball rally has begun! And thank you, UberDuber, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story, you can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. As I said last time, we we try to keep these episodes evergreen, but this past week in our relative timeline, it was the anniversary of the death of Gene Wolfe, Mm -hmm. and it was just great to read the retrospectives on this summer occasion in Reddit, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, and they're still going on. People are still adding to various threads and telling stories and posting pictures of them with Wolfe, and it's fun. It's nice. Sad, but... Sad, but nice. But Wolf left us with a lot of chores to do. So I guess we should get <laughs> to it. On the Rereading Wolf Facebook page, Charles Gillingham opened up a discussion on the first Severian that went in about five directions with theories, counter theories, and denunciations. Nothing was resolved. It was just like the old Earth list. <laughs> We're home, Toto. We're finally home. <laughs> There's a link, as always, in the show notes. So check it out. And The threads were just terrific these last two weeks. Uh, Nigel Price posted an image from Disney's The Mandalorian and Bruce Pennington's Shadow of the Torturer covers from Sedgwick and Jackson. Oh, that makes me sad that we call it Disney's Mandalorian now instead of Star Wars' Mandalorian. It is. (laughs) But I know it is. They are. Come on, accept (laughs) it. I had really hoped that Disney would would save Star Wars, and now I'm I'm not so sure that they did. But I don't know that anyone could have done better. George Lucas wasn't helping, so no, 
There is an alternative script of the last movie that's floating around and somebody even did like an animated version of it. And it seems way cooler. Oh, really? Um, there's like a 10 minute version where someone took the summary of it. And, um, but just cause it didn't have all the weird Palpatine stuff. It was, mm. yeah, it was just more of a, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, Nigel made a very compelling case that the Mandalorian poster was Pennington influenced. He also noted that bounty hunters are a guild in this series. This led to an interesting thread. Check it out. The discussion reminded me that the Mandalorian is, you know, in actuality, a Western. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what if the Book of the New Sun were a Western? An orphan boy raised by the warden of a prison in the territories. Then one day, a woman shows up in transit to be hanged or her sentence commuted by the governor. She's accused of helping a notorious outlaw escape and the people were killed in the process. And, you know, the story can go on from there. It almost writes itself. <laughs> and I can't remember. I asked in the thread, but did anyone, did he write a Western? Was there a story that was a proper Western? I don't think he, no, I don't think he ever did. Not okay. a real proper Western, but it seems to me that would come to my thoughts immediately. He wrote a lot of detective stories, but not right. Westerns. Uh, speaking of which, on Facebook, you posted a big passel of, well, fan fiction, which was amazing. Thanks. And you also posted a Tor.com article on eight TV shows, movies, and books that you don't have to understand to enjoy. I suppose it was the <laughs> inclusion of Samuel Delaney's Dahlgren that caught your eye. That was one. And it brought up old war wounds with Lost. Yeah. Some of the, <laughs> some of the post-traumatic stress disorder from long nights of staying up looking at still frames to try and pull out pictures of the numbers or whatever but yeah so speaking of old memories one thing that was fun by the way was samuel delaney on facebook brought up a story of wolf from clarion and uh, there was a if you don't know about it there's a it's a small legend i guess in sci-fi world but that Wolf got a lot of the students at Clarion, the Clarion Writers Workshop, which is specifically for sci-fi fantasy and is kind of considered like the the Iowa workshop of sci-fi fantasy among some circles. Anyway, high high praise if you get yeah. in. I think Gene Wolf workshop the fifth had a Cerberus novella there, right? Oh, did he? Oh, I had no idea. I'm sure teaching there was a big deal to him. Yeah. So Delaney told the story again of the students getting mad at him and, and people pushed him because at first it was funny. He didn't give it the whole story. He just talked about that time that Wolf did something that everybody hated, but I thought was wonderful. And I wanted to stand up and applaud. Yeah. And then people pushed him to, to tell the story. <laughs> yeah. Wolf dropped out early. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and it's something that I'd heard about before, but the details hadn't always come through. So I finally got it from someone who apparently, you know, knew, I guess, much more firsthand because Delaney explained what was going on, which was that instead of sort of taking a real authoritarian role in the class, Wolf basically sat everyone in a circle and had everyone give, you know, kind of like a, I forget exactly what it was, but it was sort of like a one good thing, one bad thing kind of thing on the stories that they were workshopping. And he didn't give any more or less than the other students, which really upset a lot of people yep. um, because he wasn't, you know, taking time to do it. And according to Delaney, the point was to say that, you know, any reader, even a well-established editor is just one reader among others. And so I think a lot of people were like, I'm not getting my money's worth, <laughs> which <laughs> is understandable. But at the same time, Delaney was making the point that that's actually a really 
cool thing. Um, and that's a, a hard lesson for writers to learn. And um, since I am not right. a creative writer of any skill like that whatsoever, I can't say, certainly not trying to get my stuff published. I, I got to admit, I kind of, I sympathize with the students in that situation. <laughs> I mean, it'd be nice to have like one day of that where you learn the lesson, but then you come back and you're like, okay, but nonetheless, here we are. You're here. Give me your, you know, you've got way more experience than everybody else. I, you know, I can kind of sympathize though with Wolf's position. I, I imagine a lot of writers went there thinking, okay, this is great. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a ladder to being a great writer. And, you know, Wolf wrote for nine years every day. He got up at five o'clock in the morning and, and wrote. And he, for nine years, he did that without selling anything. And he's probably thinking, you know, the only way to learn to be a writer is to write and maybe read as well. But mm -hmm. there's not, there's nothing, there's no advice he's going to give you that's suddenly going to turn a mediocre story into a good story because no one knows what that is. You never know. If, if people could figure out what the magic was, they'd, they do it every time. No great writer would ever write a bad novel. <laughs> they also might not want to give that secret out if they're educating their possible Yeah, they would. <laughs> right. But anyway, if you are here because I did um, advertise the show in that thread, then hi, thanks for listening. Unless you started over at the beginning and uh, just wanted to say hi, because lots of people said that they were interested in the show. So, and it did make me want to reread Nova too, because I followed Delaney on, on Facebook and other places, but I haven't reread a lot of his stuff in a while. But in telling other people about how good Nova was, it makes me want to reread it. Lots of his stuff is good. Nova is for me far and above one of my favorite books, my favorite book of his, but also just one of my favorite sort of space opera novels. Just fascinating book. Cody Martin reached out on email with thoughts about the first Severian theory. He said, this is definitely my favorite podcast. Thanks for inspiring me to reread these books again. Sweet. And, well, thank you, Cody. We're someone's favorite, James. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, that's never happened. I'm sure it's a mistake. <laughs> but it is great to hear that. Uh, Cody says, in the first Severian episode, you mentioned Thecla being a symbol of the Holy Spirit. More specifically, you mentioned the Holy Spirit entering Jesus at his baptism. I have two nitpicks with this claim. Okay, so Craig, let me set the table here. I say that Thecla, the claw, is the Holy Spirit in Severian's Christ analogy, mm -hmm. and in the three-in-one person Trinity analogy. I made that association way back in the comments of episode, maybe chapter eight, uh, maybe 10b. This is why print can be better than vocal recordings. It's easier to go back and check. Anyway, when I realized that the purpose of Thecla's name had to do with its sound alike to the claw, I declared, aha, Thecla is the Holy Spirit to Severian's Christ. And then I immediately was confused because the Holy Spirit is often personified as the dove that ascended over Christ at his baptism. And in many Gnostic and other heterodox traditions, that was when Jesus, the normal man, became Jesus the Christ. But in this story, it is Thea who is associated with doves, and her association with doves and other things about her always left me scratching my head. But my problems were solved with my interpretation of the first Severian theory, because I say, for the first Severian, it is not Thecla that he met in the cell, but Thea. So Thea was the one the first Severian met. She was his Holy Spirit, 
And this, for me, cleared up so many other questions I'd had about Thea and other things in the first third of The Shadow of the Torturer. So, Cody says, no, no. <laughs> he says, first the Elzaboth ceremony where Stekla enters Severian echoes the Eucharist more than the baptism. That's a good point, Cody. Then again, it doesn't have to be all one thing, right? The Holy Spirit enters Christ at baptism in Gnostic traditions, and Christ enters the believer through the Eucharist in Orthodox and some Protestant traditions. It's layers, but Cody's layer is valid too. He goes on. Second, according to my understanding, each person of the Trinity is completely and equally God. I believe that someone who is completely Severian would serve as a better symbol. At the end of Earth, we have three Severians. Author Severian, White Fountain, New Sun Severian, and Apupunchao. Among these three persons, Apupunchao is the best fit for the symbolic Holy Ghost. Recalling the title of the chapter where Severian and Apupunchao meet, the cleansing, this refers to how baptism cleanses the person of sin. After Apupunchao enters Severian, he wakes up to rain pouring on his face as water is poured over a candidate's head in baptism. Hmm. I definitely like the part about the rain, Cody. And there could well be something to that. Um, I, uh, long sun, short sun spoilers for the next 30 seconds. That said, it would be Wolf's MO to go with the Trinity from multiple directions. In eight to 12 years, I'll begin to stipulate in detail how in the Book of the Long Sun, Wolf creates a three-in-one trinity out of two sibs and a mysterious pair of hands, whose background I will totally go into detail about. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. Hands like doves. There it is again. I don't know if I brought this up yet. You might have to wait for Hathor to make his appearance. Also, the Book of the Short Sun, I argue that the narrator of that story is a three-in-one trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I think I already tipped my hand to that in the bonus episode with Mark Garamini. Okay, spoilers out. Incidentally, if you want a Wolfian background text on the trinity that is totally on track to where I believe Wolf is going with this analogy, I recommend the third and fourth chapters of the fourth section of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. That fourth section entitled Beyond Personality was basically folded in its entirety from a separate book of that name, Beyond Personality, that is out of print, I think, in physical media, but you can still get it for $3 on Kindle. Anyway, the third chapter of that section of the book talks about God's relation to humanity through their separate perspectives on time. I don't even have to detail why that's applicable here. But the fourth chapter merges Augustinian and other Orthodox explanations of the Trinity to create an analogy of the meaning of father and son designations from the first and second persons of the Trinity, and spends several paragraphs discussing the terms first and second persons. And he also explains that this means that God can love even without the rest of creation, because the Father and Son can eternally love each other. And that this relationship, this Spirit itself, is a person known as the Holy Spirit. Now, 
this fits nicely with my understanding of what Wolf is doing, because I say Thecla, or Thecla and Thea, is the object of Severian's love. And yes, I'd also like to come up with a way in which Thea and Thecla are equivalent, but I don't necessarily have to. The point is that they are love. So many nice comments from listeners this week. Uh, Steve Wald joined the Facebook group just to leave a nice comment. He says, somehow it took this lifelong reader and sporadic sci-fi fan into his middle age to discover Gene Wolfe and the Book of the New Sun. I just finished it for my first time a couple weeks ago. What a beautiful and strange experience. And immediately started my reread. Just refinished Claw. And then discovered this wonderful podcast and Facebook. How serendipitous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm looking forward to catching up on the podcast. I'm looking forward to participating here. I am looking forward to you participating as well. Uh, Steve, it means a lot to us that our Wolfian friends like what we're doing. Steve's read Book and Earth of the New Sun, but nothing else. There were warnings that we do tend to spoil everything that Wolf's ever written. And that's true. I've you know, I've tried to be more conscious of spoilers about The Long and Short Sun and to provide heads up in advance. But yeah, we're not safe for the spoiler phobic. No. I'm still of the opinion that it's just everything should be on the table, especially in the solar cycle. I mean, it's all one story. Yeah. So. Oh, definitely. Sorry. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah. And speaking of which, um, yeah, you should. You should read the cycle and then just come back and join us, though, if that bothers you. Uh, but I'm going to make a detailed reference to Wolf's short story, The Cat, in about a month. So get endangered species before then and make yourself spoiler proof. <laughs> Plus, I think, too, even if we do mention something from Long Sun or Short Sun, it's going to be so long. If someone hasn't read it yet, they're going to forget what it is because they have no, you, you don't have a context to remember it right <laughs> now. And so it's not going to stick. And that's you're true. All good. Yeah. You're good. People worry about their, oh, my, my first read should be pure and clean and, you know, as we've said recently, these books don't really spoil themselves. Yep. So, but, but people worry about it. I, oh, speaking of, I got I got in trouble on Reddit. I said one time somewhere on Reddit, I was like, these books have been out for like 20, 30 years now. Shouldn't all spoilers be off the table? And a couple of people were like, no, no, no. <laughs> How inconsiderate. So I apologize. Oh, yeah, yeah. I am. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it is a kind of a strange world that we live in now that movies – never go away. For people, it's as if they had just come out. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be that you would have certain books, certain movies that were just out there everywhere. You were pre-spoiled. You probably knew something about them before you even knew that they were a movie or a book. Yeah. But now, you know, I don't know. I can see it both ways. So we got a new theory pitched to us this time in YouTube. This is the first time we've gotten that. We've kind of created this YouTube channel. At first, it was for Michael so that he could have something to link to from Goodreads. But then we got requests from people to put the rest of the content up there. One listener said he was in China and at that time could not access the the podcast through uh, normal streaming methods, but he could access through, through YouTube. So, you know, we kind of maintain that we want, we don't want to miss out on anybody who's listening and has a theory about what's going on. Right. And lots of people are using it more than I thought would. It's got those little videos have more hits than I thought what they would get. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. This is from Gordon Lavasseur. I hope I said that right. 
he is commenting on the first Severian uh, episode. He says, well done, gentlemen. I have not listened to the other half of this yet, but some ideas occurred to me while listening to this. Wolf was a devout Catholic. Catholicism is unique among forms of Christianity because it makes room for the divine feminine, Holy Mary. It follows that Wolf sees the divine feminine as important as well. Okay. In light of this, I have a couple different takes on Thecla. All right. (laughs) Thecla is Mary, but Jesus had two important Marys in his life, his mother and Mary Magdalene. Does he have two Theclas? Yes. There is Thecla the Exultant and Thecla the Kybet. The Kybet is the Magdalene, the woman of the night. This interpretation leads us to reconsider Mary Magdalene's importance. Where in Christianity are the divine feminine and Mary Magdalene honored? Gnosticism. Wolf brings in a number of Gnostic ideas. If we admit the influence of Gnosticism in the Book of the New Sun, then we have room for another aspect of the feminine divine, Sophia. One of the premier Gnostic texts is the Pistis Sophia. Sophia equals wisdom. Who is Sophia? I could make a case that it is Dorcas. Well, yeah, it makes it makes sense. It makes some sense. Um, so, are you talking about you know Mary and and Sophia and wisdom? I mean, those are they're all these sort of characterizations, um, especially in a lot of medieval iconography. And but yeah, I don't. I do like the general idea that what we're looking for is you know a version that would allow for a, a sort of multiple different kind of divine. And Wolf is certainly open to that in lots of ways with his thoughts about classical mythology and things like that. But, but yeah, as far as lining up the individual people, I don't know, but I'm, I'm interested because I, I got to admit, I still think Thecla would seem more like wisdom than Dorcas. If I'm just kind of thinking in general, not that Dorcas is not wise, but that it's, Thecla is the one who in the book kind of teaches Severian a lot about the world. Dorcas is much more of a sort of personal relationship difficulty with Severian, where he learns a lot about himself and about other people or or about his relationships, particularly to women through Dorcas. But it's less like a teaching relationship than with Thecla. But she is kind of a hippy dippy guru. Right. She comes and she's she has all of these very esoteric ideas that she presents to Severian. And he's like, where did you learn all it is? That part is true. Yeah. I and and so as far as those little asides go, yeah, I could see it. But I don't know, in the long run, just the way that she just sort of turns against everything that's happening and and just feels like she just needs to go back and and revisit her old life and and can't continue forward. There's there's a certain tragic side to Dorcas that we'll need to talk about eventually that is not necessarily incompatible with wisdom. I'm just saying it it doesn't seem like that to me what I usually think of as like a representation of wisdom in the world. But oh well, you know, there is a gnostic story about Simon Magus and Sophia, I think it's Sophia, where she travels down through the eons and forgets who she is. And he Simon finds her in a brothel and then they're reunified. Now, I don't know. Does that count for Dorcas? Because she's kind of forgotten mm-hmm. who she is. Or is it Thecla? I don't, yeah, maybe. 
kind of where I it, it, there's a lot of pieces there. They're spare. I'm not sure that how they all fit together yet, but no, maybe I have to grab my copy of Gnostic Religion that apparently Wolf had. Uh, the, oh, then I, how do you, I what? Get that up how there. do you know this? That's what I'm trying to remember. As soon as I said it, I'm like, how do I know that? But I think somewhere on the earth list, somebody <laughs> said that there was a book that he mentioned, or maybe it's in an interview somewhere, but I found it and I'll have mm. to, I'll, I, I can see it up there, but I can't get up because my headphones are tethered to me. <laughs> so, um, but, but yeah, and I'll, I'll have to read through that and see what it says. Okay. Yeah. On Facebook, Mike Benowitz reached out with a really interesting Baldanders theory. He first pitched it to us on email. And of course we said, well, this is really good, Mike. When are you going to put this someplace where everyone can look at it and bat it around? And it's all based on, on Craig's question from uh, chapter 15, Baldanders, where he asked, you know, why Baldanders? Why is Baldanders in here? What is the role he plays? Is he a villain? Is he a friend, you know, that is difficult? Is he comic relief? And so Mike has an idea about what what role he plays in this story. Yeah, and the role of all the villains. It's sort of an altitude-based theory. It's an altitude allegory. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, an allegory. Yeah, it's a it's a whole really kind of cool setup where Wits figured out a bunch of ways that it seems like Severian and other people are sort of placed on this hierarchy. As he says, uh, as he ascends, ver- I'm, I'm reading from his post, but as, as Severian ascends vertically, he meets various foes of the Increate ranked in a sort of hierarchy represented by their altitude. And so he talks about mm-hmm. how there's the Alzabo and then there's Zoanthropes a little lower than that. And then you go up again to the circle of sorcerers and then finally up to Typhon all the way at the top. And that Baldanders is somewhere in between that. And it's something that he had worked out a long time ago is sort of trying to think about how Wolf sets up. Yeah. Kind of like the enemies of the Increate. Um, or at least of the Increate's plans in this hierarchical kind of allegorical setting. And I thought it was not only ingenious, but also pretty convincing in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, nicely put together. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll read the, the entry about Baldanders. Yeah. Baldanders is the epitome of scientific materialism. He's at Lake Deaterna, which, unless I'm mistaken, is higher than the jungle of the sorcerers, but much lower than Mount Typhon. Baldanders would commit the classic sin of trying to storm the gates of heaven. He is a critique of modern post-enlightenment materialism. This pits him in fundamental opposition to the type of person Severian is, or at least is trying to make himself seen. Right. And I like that. I mean, we had talked in the episode about or how Baldanders seemed to be a kind of version of science versus versus whatever Severian's doing. But I like even better how Wits sort of has Baldanders and that it's scientific materialism is one in a kind of hierarchy of different call them sins. I mean, for lack of a better word, <laughs> um, that that each of these enemies represents. And I like that, that Baldanders is lower than Typhon because he's not a complete kind of moral you know, selfish, almost evil, satanic kind of danger. But instead, he's just kind of a wrong idea. And actually, part of the reason I like that is because Baldanders doesn't seem like the the huge alternate 
to Severian. Like he's wrong. He's not exactly what Severian's going to do, but it's not like he's his arch enemy or anything. Right. Yeah. And I think what was part of the question I had about that was, well, in that dream, it seems like in the dream, they're set up as opponents, but maybe that dream doesn't have to be for all of Severian's destiny, just between the two of them. Um, But I like with wits here because it, it puts Baldanders in a kind of um, continuum of different things that Severian has to go up against. And it makes a lot of sense. And when I was reading the theory, you know, when he, he mentions how Bald Anders is scientific materialism, yeah, it, Severian is kind of a foil to that in that Severian is himself a, a scientific artifact, a hero. Mm-hmm. He's trained in science. He sees himself as a scientific person. Mm-hmm. The skill of being a torturer is seen as a scientific craft. Yeah. So it makes sense that the alternate new son might be also a, a scientist. Yeah. And one thing I was thinking too, that's nice about that is that we, we have talked various times about how this book may be putting you where fantasy always seems like a kind of mystification and a misunderstanding of things and that science fiction is what comes around and explains it. Just like maybe the Hyroduels are actually the, the alien conspiracy that's, behind everything. That's kind of the Peter Wright version. But what I like about this is that it gives us a way that actually presenting that as an option is actually something that's in the book that Severian could come up against, almost maybe even like a temptation. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, you can explain everything through scientific materialism, but it's not complete. And that, of course, we know Severian has a a much different understanding of what's going on himself later on with the whole, you know, the prayer and his, his recognition of sort of destiny and his connection to how everything is sacred. And we'll get to that much later. But yeah, I like that because it has that very self-consciously in there as Baldanders, but also as something that Severian has to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and just like yeah. Typhon, just like the circle of torturers, just like the Alzabo, he's a kind of temptation. Yeah. Really great. Yeah. I like it. So that's, and I, it fits in with my sort of allegorical kick too. So yeah. So of course I'm going to like it. <laughs> and I'll, as always, you know, put a link to that in the show notes. So check them out. Don't, don't miss out on the show notes. A lot of good stuff in there. And we finally, we've got reviews on Apple podcasts. Uh, first one is from Latro again. It says, I read the solar cycle only once 12 years ago with little preparation or context other than recommendations from fellow authors John Crowley and Ursula Le Guin and critic Michael Durda. Oh, he says fellow authors. I'm not sure whether he means his own fellow authors or Wolf's fellow authors. Right. I was wondering that too, because part of me was like, Ooh, we've got a big name. <laughs> okay. Okay. We've got three <laughs> names here. Let's connect the one in the middle. <laughs> okay. Let's go on. Since then, I've forgotten almost everything, much like Lake Tro. This podcast has been fascinating as a point of re-entry, and in fact, it is now the basis of a Book of the New Sun close-reading book club with my wife and three other wolf-fiend friends, fellow folklorists, writers, librarians, and archivists. Thank you for your research and work. It's revelatory and a lot of fun, too. Wow, that is great! Yeah, he got his wife involved! (laughs) 
If only all of us could be so lucky. Yeah. But um <laughs> yeah. Although you are, you're at least she buys you the copies of story that you Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. She she's uh she's she's my my pusher. <laughs> but but no, that's really cool. And I am it sounds like an interesting group of people who would have some different yeah. kinds of comments on things. So yeah, I would I would love to listen in on that book club. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing from what comes out of there. Just set a microphone in the middle and got their own podcast. <laughs> but thank you very much for that. We appreciate it. And now we have another review. Five stars from listener Bandersnatch, which was really encouraging. The review is entitled Metaphysically, as in the title. He says, as a firm believer that rereading Wolf is truly the only way to read Wolf, I've greatly enjoyed these discussions thus far. The crazy and not-so-crazy theory crafting is fun, and at the very least makes you think harder about what you're reading or remembering. The access to longtime Earthless folks is really icing on the cake. This would be worth listening to if it was either the chapter-by-chapter chapter reads or the bonus episodes. I will say I'm not so sure I can get behind all the musical kitsch. Not the outro, the soundboards. But it's five stars nonetheless. Thank you, Bandersnatch. That is so encouraging. And thanks for stepping lightly around the outros, because... You know how I am. <laughs> well, Bandersnatch has doubts about the musical catch. Maybe we should rethink it. I am the Bandersnatch. The Bandersnatch. Uh, Craig, I so hope Bandersnatch reaches out with comments and theories in the future under that handle. Not only for the obvious reasons, but because I want to get more use out of that Bandersnatch clip. <laughs> It was actually speaking of sort of serendipitous. It was also, I was, I've been rereading peace and I had to, there's a line in there where he's talking about what is a wave. And I was like, yeah, what is a wave? And I had to look it up. And of course it's the line from, from the Jabberwocky poem. So that was fun. Cause I was like, oh, I didn't even catch the, the reference. I thought it was just some word I didn't know. <laughs> there it was. And now Craig, I think it's time for Miss Toad's wild ride. <laughs> That's a good one. Chapter 18, The Destruction of the Altar. All right. So bringing us up to speed, the Varian has just met Agilus and Agia in their rag shop. Agia, disguised as a military officer, has supposedly challenged the Varian to a duel with Averns, deadly plants. Then she's reappeared as herself, such as it is, and offered to take Severian to get an Avern and tell him the rules of the duel. It seems that this is a necessary part of the plan to keep him on the path, keep mm -hmm. him information, ensure he neither runs, begins to see the holes in the arrangement, or talks to anyone else. Severian still doesn't know Ajia's name. He refers to her as the shopkeeper's sister, this is still less than 24 hours since he left the Citadel and exactly two weeks since the Feast of Holy Catherine. Yep. All right, then. Severian writes, The hush of early morning had vanished while I was in the rag shop. Wains and drays rumbled by in an avalanche of beasts, wood, and iron. He even sees a flyer, quote, skimming among the towers of the city, which I take to mean that now commerce is finally in full force. It's rush hour. 
<laughs> I suppose it must be, you know, like, what, 9 a.m. now or something? Yeah, that seems right. After breakfast. Are these towers rockets, too? Probably not. I'm not sure. I know somebody was just talking. Oh, it was um, the guy on the in the Facebook group who has done a lot of drawings lately, and he was trying to talk about what to draw the city like. And yeah, he was wondering too. I think how many times, how many rockets, and are we right. are we thinking like space age looking rockets and what they are? But yeah, but yeah, how many is an important question to me. How many of these are old buildings? I mean, because when he's given when he gave his list of the different types of buildings, it was massive with all kinds of different structures <laughs> so it may be that it may be that this is a city where a rocket ship is just one thing among other kinds of things that's just sitting in there yeah. yeah i suppose it's not impossible that you could have other places where rockets take off than the citadel mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be i mean I, you could sometimes even in a wolf novel a tower is just a tower yeah i, I Theoretically. <laughs> and anyway, this uh, this part of the city is not as old as the Citadel, though, right? It's When the Citadel was built, it was well north of the city, and the city has creeped up around the Citadel and now begun to pass it by. So Ajia tells him that it was probably an officer that challenged him and that he's on his way back to House Absolute. Yeah, she says that's probably him in the flyer. Right there, which is <laughs> yeah. a good bit of improvising, you know, Pretty to good. be, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to say like, oh, here's something going on. Just a, it's a nice detail that would make it seem more real <laughs> if you don't know what's going on. Yeah. Severian says, is that your brother? Yes. Something like that. <laughs> that was all Severian. You know what? I was, when I was re-listening to this earlier, um, I was, I had the audiobook version on and I had a moment where I was like, oh, if that really is her saying yes, something like that. <laughs> I was like, oh, that would be so perfect for all yeah. kinds of things. And I immediately had to go check and was very disappointed that it was still. But for me, it's the same thing. <laughs> if Severian says, is that your brother? And she doesn't answer and he just says, yes, something like that. <laughs> so uh-huh, Yeah, could be. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have my suspicions about these two, and not just that they are shady and planning to murder Severian. So, but Severian asks for her name at last. She says, Asia, and you know nothing of Monomaki and have me for an instructor? Well, High Hypogean help you. High Hypogean seems to refer to a god under the earth, which reminds me of that creature under the man-ape's cave to which Agia will send Severian. If she's working for a Megatherian, you know, maybe that's one. They're going to go to the Botanic Gardens to pick up an Avern and wants him to spring for the cost of hiring a cab. He says that he can afford it if necessary. Now, at this point, Craig, she says something that, like Agilus, implies that she doesn't know who or what Severian is, which mm-hmm. doesn't mean it can't be a setup just for him alone, but it doesn't help. She says, then you're not really an armager in costume. You're uh, whatever you are. Severian says he's a torturer and wants to know when the duel is. Right. And so- that moment of wondering, I always read that as a bit of disappointment, like, oh, you're not really an armager in mm-hmm. costume, as if, you know, we thought we'd get more off you. You would have money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're a, and that's why she's like, you're just a whatever you are. Yeah, it's all, I, I read that very disappointed. Yeah. 
Yeah, I no, I I, I get that too. I get that too. It it definitely undercuts all of my conspiracy theories about Agio. <laughs> but I, I'm going to tell you. Here's my response to that. Don't pay attention to what she says. Pay attention to what she does. Pay attention to the role she plays in this story because these things don't fit together, in my opinion. Oh yeah, she gets weird. I mean, yeah. even I still remember the first time I read it, thinking that yeah, I know he killed your brother, but she's going to these like insane lengths of you know eventually getting caught up with Vodalus mm-hmm. and you know and of course Heather and all this. I mean, it's a it's a crazy sort of different life that she's lived from a small time con artist right. in one little corner of the city to all of a sudden, you know, working through all these different people in different parts of the world. And I mean, not, not impossible, but not. Im- not yeah. Even- and just because Severian was so obstinate that he wouldn't die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess if you, if the only thing you have in your life is your twin and that's taken away from you and you need something to shape your life, mm. then it works, but it's more about the manner in which she does it, which seems so out of proportion to the kind of, uh, you know, background that apparently she has. But the, but the conversation here is very pure to the character we're assumed to believe. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And she's throughout this whole thing. She's smart. She's improvising. She's Mm -hmm. anytime something happens or changes, she's kind of rolling with it and trying to, to keep that as part of the con. Right. So yeah, she's, she is definitely skilled. So she tells him that the duel is late afternoon. That's when the Avern opens its flower. Okay, so let's talk about the Avern. The Avern means literally without birds. The Averni are lakes typically formed in the craters of volcanoes in the region of the Phlegraean fields of volcanoes near Naples. Phlegraean fields means burning fields, but you can't ignore a semantic connection to sanguinary field, bloody field. Mm -hmm. The Averni lakes emit CO2 and other gases, and the CO2 is heavier than air, so it sits on the lake surface, and the birds die and sink. And so, no birds. Wow. Here's something else. At the location of a famous Averni is the Grotto of the Dog. It was a tourist attraction that was visited by a lot of literary celebrities, including Mark Twain. As Lexicon Earthless tells us, the most famous Averni is Lake Avernus. On the shores of Lake Avernus is the Cumaean Sibyl, the Cumaean Witch. There's a tunnel that connects the lake to the Cumaean cave. Okay. Let's cue the Curiositas Earthus music. (laughs) The first of maybe a few. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go on. (laughs) Curiositas Earthus. Now the Cumaean Sibyl and Lake Avernus have a direct connection to Virgil's Ionid, book six. In this part of the story, Ionus goes to the underworld to consult with his father. On the way, he encounters the spirit of Dido, inconsolable. So, mapping the Botanic Garden's visit over book six, all the characters seem accounted for. Severian as Ionus, Owen as his father, 
Dorcas as Dido. There's only one character missing. The one who leads Ianus to the underworld. The Kumean Sybil. So, remember all this with Agilus's mask and our agreement, mine firm, yours tentative, that if Agilus's face is a mask, then so is Agia's. So, could mm-hmm. Agia be a witch? If she is one, then Agilus is too, and they're wearing the same mask. And so, Agia's reference to her mother, if it is to be believed at all, refers to the Kamean witch. When she says, quote, Agilus and I own our shop, it was bequeathed to us by our mother. When Severian encounters Atheta in Earth of the New Sun, he compares his reaction to her, his desire for her, looking like a normal human, to his reaction to Asia. He says, quote, I have said she was an ordinary looking woman of middle age, and so she was, not tall, a few wrinkles apparent at her eyes and mouth, her hair touched at the temples with frost, yet there was something I could not resist. Perhaps it was only the aura of the isle. So some common men find all exultant women attractive. Perhaps it was her eyes, which were large and luminous and of the deep, deep blue sea, unfaded by age. Perhaps it was some third thing, sensed unconsciously, but I felt again as I had when, so much younger, I had encountered Asia, a desire so strong that it seemed more spiritual than any faith. Its flesh burned away in the heat of its own yearning. So, there's also his sense that when he copulates with Atheta, he has somehow birthed the new sun and a new universe. Mm-hmm. And remember, in the last chapter, he said of Asia, I felt that we too might commit some act so atrocious that the world seeing us would find it irresistible. Well, Craig, what could be more atrocious than the destruction of Earth? <laughs> so, no one is getting into my white van on this one, but <laughs> could Asia be a feta? This would help solve two puzzling Severian relationships at once. And their connection isn't unsourced. Severian himself makes that connection. Well, it seems the immediate question would be, why then would Afeta spend so much time trying to kill him if then she's going to congratulate him for being the new son? Well, she gets to does she really try to kill him? <laughs> I mean, why, why you might ask the same. I've already brought this up, that, <laughs> that Haythor is supposed to be trying to kill him. And he doesn't. He's always every he just shows up and saves Severian every time, time after time after time. The but there's one thing I do realize that this theory that Asia is a witch, maybe even that she's a feta, this would dustbend my theory of the connection between her and Haythor's Never. sex doll. I was gonna say that one that would definitely go in a different direction from that one. So but the one thing that I do find interesting would be the possibility of her connection with, with the witches. Because, first of all, we don't know a whole lot about the witches. The most we learn is in Claw. And their motivations are mysterious. Exactly. Um, but there is that odd scene in the prison the day of Agilus's execution 
where they seem to be drawing some kind of weird ritual thing mm -hmm. on the ground. Now, that could be Severian just totally misunderstanding scrublings. Who knows? Um, but that's one thing that does kind of make me wonder. And then the fact that Ajia is, even if it's just through Hether, connected to these otherworldly creatures. Well, if the, the witches are apparently, as the ritual shows, they're able to sort of do some do some weirdness with opening gates between time mm -hmm. and all kinds of stuff like that. Well, maybe she's more familiar with those kinds of things that Heather has um, through that connection. Now that could be the other question I would have then is, well, then why is she, if she is a witch, why is she spending so much time in this little rag shop rather than mm -hmm. living with the witches? But you know, the one thing about the one thing that makes all the theories about Asia to me so like that I need to pay attention to them is because of that drawing that, that she's sketching mm -hmm. on the floor. Uh, because that's not, that just seems like such a deliberate point to connect her to, to something else, whatever that is that I feel like we need to, we need to focus yeah. on it. So unless it's just the very end, you know, misunderstanding what he sees, which is always possible. I feel like that's the, the thing that makes me go to it. And the witches seems closer, not, not to not to to take away your fun, but, but definitely more more likely than the fact that she's you know a feta in disguise and then working in total opposite ways. Um, but no, the the witch angle is something that I I want to think about. And and the one other thing that I've always known is like how does well we'll get to it later. But you know, Ajia has to think crazy fast in order to see the claw when she we you know when they're in the midst of having just crashed to see the claw grab it. You know, it, it, then it's sort of like, well, if she did have secondary, you know, she had this witch connection, then were they intending? Well, no, I guess they weren't intending there because the, the driver is the one who takes them in a way that, that messes up the or that, that crashes into the pelerines. But yeah, maybe unless I want to I want to talk about that one. But the thing about the thing about Asia is, you know, I feel like, uh, as you know, I feel like I've finally after all these years, decades, solved the Thea problem that, I don't know, <laughs> very few people, mm -hmm. very few people I heard wringing their hands over that as much as I did. But I always was bothered by it. But now I finally feel like I've solved it. But now Asia has become my new Thea. <laughs> no theory completely resolves her. And every theory I come up with undercuts the others. She's my new Thea. There's Ajilis's masks. There's Hathor's sex doll. There's Earth's Bonnie Parker. <laughs> yeah. And there's there's a connection to Virgil's E in it. Well, she I mean, doesn't make sense. And just to, as long as we're here in a little curiosity, Earth is sort of aside. The one, the more I thought about it since last time about her being Hathor's sex doll, like you said, is just it partly could explain why Severian had such an irrational you know, lust for mm -hmm. her all of She's a designed for that, right? She's designed for that. Who knows what other kind of, you know, obviously, I mean, think of all the stuff that Talos can do to Jalenta to make her appear attractive, which is not just the mm -hmm. physical things, you know, because they talk about that she had drugs and she had that that mental confidence that made her mm -hmm. seem that way. Well, Aja could have that same thing. And then in all the other times, whenever we see Aja, she's really controlling men like she has the crossbow guys right um at the tower she's able to to get Votalis to let her in to the the circle and at least be close 
And yeah, so there's, there's all kinds of ways that that makes a little sense. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, she's a rag shop girl. She's not fighting or anything. She has Ajlis do all the fighting. She's doing the, the conniving. She's doing the setting up supposedly. And then next thing you know, she's, she's got these big claws and she's fighting and, you know, wounding people. Yeah. She's got fighters under her. She's crazy. But you were going to say something else. There was another point you were going to make, I think. Well, yeah, I, I still kind of think that Hathor's motivations are key here. He's at least as peculiar as Ajia. His relation to her is not the only puzzle about him. Like I said in our annotation episode with Michael, I think his name was chosen in the same way Thekla's was. He's the thorn. I can't say emphatically what that means, but I'm struck by the fact that all the supposed attempts to kill Severian with his monsters end up helping him. And even when he tells Vodalus that Severian is the autark, it not only misleads him, the way he is, his demeanor, his form is such that it just makes Vodalus less inclined to believe that it could be true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I know I'm already, I'm already on a limb. I'm not sure there, there are other things. Okay. I'll talk about this. How about if I string some other theories together with Ajia, the witch and, and, and maybe a feta, you know, or may, or some other, you know, Herodules, you know, in a mask. If Severian's comet identifies her with a feta, could Hathor be shape-changing Zadkiel, traveling even further back in time to observe the famous Severian up close, <laughs> you know, just like he did in Earth of the New Sun? Well, we know that one of Zach's appearances is pretty hairy and... <laughs> Pretty beastly. No, it's okay. You can say it. I'm a wonder. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we are only like 15 lines into the chapter, so we should probably get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Asia hails a cap, a Fiecker. Remember, this is like a little hackney coach, mm-hmm. like vampires and Mr. Hyde and Jack the Ripper ride in in period movies. It's drawn by a pair of onagars. Semantically, an onagar is an Asiatic wild ass. It's a bit less than seven feet long from head to tail, two meters. The the Northern Asian species have a ridge of mane running down their backs. As we all know, the Fiecker is not being drawn by Asiatic wild asses. It's being drawn by an animal that is in some way equivalent to that animal in the Commonwealth societies. That is, you wouldn't use it in ways that a medieval society would use a highly trained thoroughbred animal. It's right. it's not something you would ever consider as a war horse. It's a cheap and maybe slower, although as we'll see, it's pretty fast, useful for pulling a hackney cab. It's the Toyota Camry of transportation <laughs> animals. So uh, Ajia says, you're going to be killed, you know. From what you say, it seems very likely. It's practically certain. So don't worry about your money. <laughs> Now, just as with Agilus trying to buy the sword for more than it's worth, this strikes me as contrary to Agia's goals. Assuming she plans to get Severian to participate in the duel and be killed, Agilus has already stipulated that if he doesn't show up, he'll be assassinated. But Agia should be telling him that if he listens to her instructions, he just takes her advice, then he might survive. 
If he were a wealthy armager, he might very well be leaving town. For that matter, an armager would have better advice available to him than a random shop girl. Do we really believe that Ajia is just a lone actor and not in any attempt to manipulate Severian? I mean, well, I, I manipulate him to do what? Well, this one I actually feel like is more of a, it's sort of a bit of a joke that she's saying here because the next thing she does is pose for him, basically, that she steps out into traffic and then he talks about how she's, um, you know, standing like a memorial statue. So it could be that that, oh, that's sort of, it's flirty. It's like a flirty oh, joke. Okay. It could be. But just because of the way that she acts afterwards, that's, that's what I, kind of think about that so but plus also she's planning the seed i mean at the very least she's like you know you should spend some money on me if you're gonna die <laughs> and i mean as we find out honestly severian starts to think that way for a little while no he says that she's yeah you're like you said she's standing there like a memorial statue to the unknown woman is is the unknown woman an icon in severian's commonwealth like the unknown soldier I don't know if it's supposed to be to something specific. I think he was saying that she was standing out there being like an, an icon to whatever she was doing, that mm. the pose she had was so confident and so dramatic that it seemed like mm. she was, you know, turning herself into a memorial of herself or something like that. Okay. Does that make sense? Nah, maybe. Like, I feel like that's kind of the, at least just the phrasing of the way he does it, but it's also confidence, right? I mean, she's standing out in the middle of a crazy thing, right? Traffic. And I was thought she was certain to be killed herself, but then nope, she hires a cab. Yeah. So, all right. So as the cab pulls up, uh, the onagers that are pulling it kind of dance away from her as if she were a thiocene, uh, a thiocene is the largest modern marsupial that became extinct in the 1930s. It was known as the Tasmanian tiger doing its stripes and as the, Tasmanian wolf because it looked vaguely doggish. She jumps into the cab, although she's apparently small and thin, her weight is enough to make the little cab rock. Severian gets in and it's small enough that Severian notes that their hips are pressed together. So they're off to the botanical gardens. Ajia says, so dying doesn't bother you? That's refreshing. Severian says, surely it's not that unusual. There must be thousands, perhaps millions of people like me, people accustomed to death, who feel that the only part of their lives that really mattered is over. It's a super dramatic thing for him to say. Yeah. Right? You know, <laughs> well, he's very um, emo. He's a young... <laughs> he definitely is. He's a young torturer. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, but he's he also is kind of like matching her bravado with with a bit of his own, mm. right? Like these are, you know, and I, I feel like if you kind of think about the speed, because this, this is the one chapter where, you know, things start, things happen so fast. I mean, the rag shop is weird. You just met Talos and Baldanders, and then you read this where literally they're randomly in a race, yeah. you know, I mean like a horse race. Um, and then they crash into a thing and things just happen so quickly that, you know, I feel like some of that, their bravado is that it, it just matches that pace a little bit, how they're both like playing with each other and flirting, but she's actually more successful because she's getting Severian to follow along. Mm. And Severian is pretty much out of his depth for the most part, but he's so fatalistic that it would probably not be all that hard to get him to follow along with just about anything at this point. Yeah. He has no idea where to go. So yeah, the, the sun is rising and it's early morning 
And the red light of the sun is turning, quote, the dusty pavement to red gold and made me feel philosophical. And so here we get in the middle of this thing where he's just hopped into a thing and about to do a race, a great sort of wolf thing that happens everywhere in New Sun, uh, (laughs) an aside that is kind of connected, but also seems to take things in, in a different direction. But yeah, so basically we get a Brown Book story. This is our first Brown Book story. Yeah. Yeah, it's a story of an angel. Yeah. Uh, Severian supposes that it was originally one of the Valkyries, the flying security force of the Autark that he'll meet in the Citadel of the Autark. Which I had actually forgotten he mentions here. So I was excited to be like, <laughs> oh, those are real. And then I'm like, oh, wait, of course I know those are real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's easy to forget them because all those weirdo things come in at mm-hmm. once and go mm-hmm. away. So when coming to Earth, on a mission, the angel is mortally wounded by a child's arrow. Wolf is working in the poem, Who Shot Cock Robin? Here. Yeah, uh, Who Shot Cock Robin? I said the sparrow with my bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. There's more signals than that, really. So, quote Severian remembers the story. He says, With her gleaming robes all dyed by her heart's blood, even as the boulevards were stained by the expiring light of the sun, the archangel Gabriel stands over her. In the Commonwealth, Gabriel, in addition to a horn strapped to his back with a rainbow, he carries a sword and a large two-handed axe in either hand. And he said, and Gabriel says, Where wind you, little one, with your breast more scarlet than the robins? And the angel says, I am killed, and I return to merge my substance once more with the pan creator. And Gabriel says, don't be absurd. You can't die. And the angel insists that she is dying. And she offers a series of proofs. Her blood is only seeping from the wound instead of spurting. Her face is pallid instead of warm and bright. Her hands are cold. Her breath is fetid, foul, and nitrous. Nitrous means an unpleasant odor, like the smell of something greasy burning. And she says, if you're still not convinced, just stand there and watch me die. And Gabriel says, oh, I'm convinced. It's just that I realized that if I'd known I could die, I wouldn't have always been so brave. And Severian says, I feel like the archangel in the story. If I had known I could spend my life so easily and so soon, I would not probably have done it. Craig, done what? I think he means Thecla. I mean, I think he means, you know, cause something to, even though Thecla didn't necessarily immediately lead to his death, I think he's sort of tying all that together, that that this mm. led to that. Um, yeah, and I think he's feeling like it's one of the first times where he's really thinking about consequences. Um, before, you know, he had done all these things and was feeling bad about leaving his home, but excited about going somewhere else. But it's also kind of the first time where he's like, oh, and this all may be over really soon um, because we may have just been joking about dying, but it's actually seems like it's probable. And, you know, that's people joke about teenagers thinking they're immortal, but that's exactly what the, the story is talking about. It's like someone who the angel who thought he was immortal and when he realized he wasn't, it actually made him a whole lot more cautious and, and frightened of things. And that's what's going on with Severian here, that it's one of those moments where he's starting to realize that, that he can get himself in trouble 
Um, and later on, it'll be a bigger thing when he realizes how much he can get other people in trouble. But, um, but here that's, I feel like that's the, he says he was feeling philosophical and sure enough, this was actually one of his philosophical asides that directly related to him. And then he just comes right out and says, yeah, I think I was too rash with some things that I've done. Well, isn't he still being rash? Uh, going, oh, oh totally. Because oh. that's, I mean, there's the irony of him saying like, I feel like, yeah, I've been too rash. And then all of a sudden he's going to totally go along with the race. Right. And and he's just right. going to dive yeah. in. Well, he's, he's going to go on and do a duel. He doesn't have to do it. Yeah. Well, but so, but next he gets fatalistic. Mm-hmm. He he's made his decision and there's nothing he can do. He says this afternoon, the Septentrion will kill me with what a plant, a flower, in some way, I don't understand. A short time ago, I thought I could go to a place called Thrax and live there whatever life there was to be lived. Well, last night I roomed with a giant. One is not more fantastical than the other. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That is pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. And one thing, so here's how, this is one thing I've been realizing a lot with with rereading, especially with rereading some things in Earth lately, is that there's so many parts of the story where Severian reflects on, you know, gaining a wider perspective or becoming more mature or realizing about, you know, what consequences are for himself or other people. There are so many times where he tries to say, and this is where I learned this thing. And this is where I I learned the value of this thing. But what I like is that Wolf doesn't, he doesn't present a world where having that realization means that you immediately act on it and it solves problems because this thing that you, this part that you just read is Severian saying, I wouldn't have thrown it away. I would have been more careful. And so what does he do? He immediately says, and now I'm throwing all the rest of my caution to the wind. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, I'm having a mature realization of something that I should have realized a long time ago, but I still am not able to act on it. And that kind of thing happens so many times yeah. in, you know, with Severian. Like how many times does he say, I was done being a torturer, but then he still, you know. And now I am a torturer. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel like it's it's a perfect thing. Now, what I think is going on here, and honestly, the sort of, we're going to step all the way back and why I think that's so cool is that. Wolf isn't writing a sort of simple coming of age story where someone has a realization and then their life is different. Instead, it's much more realistic that you, that maturing and, you know, gaining a wider perspective is a hard process that is not a straight line and it doesn't happen in magic realizations. And that even if you do have a realization, getting yourself to act on that is crazy hard. And um, it's so much more realistic and it also makes, I feel like it makes Severian more relatable in certain ways. Mm. Like, I know you could read this as be like, wow, this guy doesn't learn his own lessons, but I don't think anybody does. Like, I don't know anyone who's like, you know, had a moment of realization and then lived the rest of their life <laughs> perfectly in the, in the, the, the basking glow of that one good moral realization that mm. they had. Right. You know, it's like new year's resolutions. But yeah, so I that's a lot to take on that one point, but it's something that I feel like is a big part of Severian's maturity is that it's never a straight line. Yeah. So Severian now, while they're riding along, he sees the cathedral of the Pelerines and he asks Agia, what's that building? It has a red roof, vermilion, he calls it, and forked columns. 
fork columns start from a single base and then they split in two at the top. The building itself is fragrant. Severian supposes there's allspice pounded in the mortar. And if he can smell it from here, then there's a lot of allspice there. That's why I was going to ask. It seems like it's it should be the tent, but is he actually asking about something else? I mean, what is she? She says the mensal of the monarchs. Yes. Well, and the mon- a monarch is is a nunnery or or, or monks or like nuns monks? Are, okay. are monarchs and mensal. That's an int- that's a tougher one because a mensal is something that has to do with a table for eating. Yeah. So I guess so. This is that's maybe the temple serves as a kind of great hall, a dining hall. Yeah, I was curiously curious what you had because that's one that one of the words that Wolf does put in uh, Castle of the Otter, um, but he says it's a place supplying a monthly rent to a religious order or official, particularly if the rent is given in the form of food. Now I got to say, I spent a long time looking up mensal, and nowhere on the internet did I find things that were pretty close to that. So. No, I didn't find anything like that. And but also I'm not sure I understand how that relates to this either. So, well, that you know, a place supplying a monthly rent to a religious order or official, particularly if the rent is like does she does she think that that's like where people who work for the pelerines rent and live? But yeah, I was just I got confused over what it is cuz I assume with the red roof and um, but then he says the forked columns, and I don't know if the tent had columns so much. So I was wondering if this was something else. And this one, I got to admit, this one kind of baffles me a little bit. It's easy to see that maybe they're just describing the Pellerine's temple in a way that I, I'm just not getting. Well, it looks, I would I get the idea that it looks like something that's solid, but it's just a tent. That's just what I got. And it's the it was the red roof that made me say, oh, well, it must be. Yeah. And he, he says it's a building. And of course, when they crash into it, they think it's a building. Um, so. And it's the monarch. It I mean, it has seems to be like it has to be. Yeah. And that's the most obvious thing that it's kind of like the, t- the, the, not, I guess, kind of foreshadowing where he mentions a weird building and sure enough, we're going to crash into the mm-hmm. building later on. So, right. um, but yeah, but just the, the, the word mensal got me. So if any of you are big word freaks and want to figure out <laughs> where Wolf got that definition of mensal, that would be a, a good one to follow up on because I'm a little confused. Yeah. Uh, now we're going to get some more conversation from Agia that if taken at face value suggests that she's just a simple shop girl who happened on Severian by chance. Agia says, do you know you are a frightening man? <laughs> when you entered our shop, I thought you only another young armager in Motley dressed up. Then when I found you were really a torturer, I thought it couldn't really be so bad after all. That is, I still didn't think it was so unique that you were only a young man like other men. And Severian responds, and you have known a great many young men, I imagine. (laughs) And he says, the truth was that I was hoping she had. I wanted her to be more experienced than I. And though I did not for an instance think myself pure, I wish to think her less pure still. And just for some context, so this isn't a thing where Severian has just had a philosophical digression about death and realizing his own death and then saying, no, I'm going to achieve, I'm going to follow that to whatever. And I've encountered fantastical things and he's all the way back now to flirting, right? Like it's just, this section is yeah. all over the place. Yeah. It's a weird fantasy yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, what are we supposed to learn about Severian from that? 
I'm not sure. <laughs> not well. I feel like with, like she's. This is another place where I feel like Aji is playing him. Like she's saying, uh, first mm-hmm. of all, you know, she's trying to to shake his confidence a little bit that you're just a young man like any mm-hmm. other young man, and it's a bit of a challenge to him. And he actually comes back and changes the subject a little bit. Like instead of talking about him, he puts it back on her. So there is a little bit of back and forth that goes on between him through here in the midst of writing mm-hmm. a crazy thing for the first time. Yeah, but I, I just think it's still so odd that Severian is all over the place and just I think gives an insight into his mindset at this point, which is nothing solid, whatever. He is, <laughs> he is at the whim of fate. Well, Ajia goes on. Uh- Originally, she didn't think he was so different from anyone else. But, she says, but there is something more to you after all. You have the face of someone who stands to inherit two palatinates on an aisle somewhere I have never heard of, and the manners of a shoemaker. And when you say you're not afraid to die, you think you mean it. And under that, you believe you don't. But you do, at the very bottom. It wouldn't bother you a bit to chop off my head either, would it? I like that. She's she's right. Like what she's describing is yeah. very much right that he's a mix of things. Like he's got this odd education, but socially he's been grown up in a, in a backwater. So he know, you know, he has an education, but you know, manners of a shoemaker, that's probably right. And he's so confused about his own motivations at this point that the way she describes it is right. But then she does catch on to, you know, but there is still some kind of weird confidence about you. Um, And then she notices that thing that it wouldn't bother you a bit to chop off my head either, would it? That's getting to that sense that you, you're not playing the same games that everybody else plays in terms of like how people well that he's very detached right yeah exactly he's detached from himself he's detached from the world and that's it and that's both from the torturers and also you know part of severian's personality that we'll get to know but but it's it's a great summary i think of severian so she's whatever else she is she is quite good at reading people yeah she's astute we'll get some description of the traffic around them here he says uh machines wheeled and wheelless vehicles. Wheelless vehicles? Mm-hmm. That's fun. Pulled by animals and slaves, walkers and riders on the backs of dromedaries, oxen, metaminodons, and hackneys. A dromedary, of course, is a one-humped camel. A metaminodon is a North American aquatic hornless rhinoceros that went extinct about 23 million years ago. Now, Asia does something peculiar. If you think she's just a shop girl con man, this thing that she does next is a very strange thing to do. An open fiacre pulls up next to them. Theirs is the same sort that that they have. They're both not enclosed. It's an open cart. Ajia leans toward the couple that it carries and shouts, What'll distance you? And the guy driving it is Racho, who the guy who was rude to Severian in the Pinocathecan at the Citadel, the picture gallery, a couple of years ago, when he was going to Alton's library. Well, isn't it a year ago? Oh, a year, a ago. year, a ago. year ago. About a year ago. Yep. Yeah. yeah. She challenges him to race them to the garden landing. The prize is one Chrysos. He's up for it. Severian says, Are you mad or is he? Now, okay. 
Craig, if her motivation is just to get Severian to the botanical garden so he can pick up the Avern that will kill him in his duel, then Agilus should have picked someone to go with him that doesn't have ADHD. <laughs> because this is way off the plan. And her explanation for it is weird too, because she says that what she's really trying to do is convince everybody that he's actually an armager yeah. in disguise. But that's so strange. It's like <laughs> that doesn't make sense and, at all. Like because they're not even around people who are gonna be with them for any period of time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So the motivation here for her doing this is weird. And the one thing that to me that I feel like it is is it's another way that she's trying to shake Severian up, and she's trying to to get him off totally off balance. You know, I still assume that her plan is actually still to go to the Botanic Gardens and, and get him, but she's trying to to maybe make him think that he's dependent on her mm. uh, to know what's going on in this world. Like today and in this situation, that part would make sense to me because that's also why she gets so frustrated when they're in the gardens is that he starts not following her. Right. So I feel like that's it. The way of doing this is just so strange. And then, yeah, so Racho, so in the middle of that, he randomly runs into somebody he's seen before, right? <laughs> yeah, from the for the Citadel. So do you have an idea? Why would Wolf do that? Well, it does give Severian a motivation to go along because he has a beef with Racho. It's true. He says that he he really looked forward to the prospect of humiliating him. So in that sense, it gives it yeah, it it gives some it gives Severian some stake yeah, in the story. That would work. That would because Severian's going to have to go along with this, and he does. And I do, by the way, we should play the Curiositos music here because I do have a small one for Racho. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Curiositas Urthus. So back on the Earth list, way back in 1998, Michael Andre uh put forward a notion that I had never thought of, but actually seems to make sense to me, um, which is that Racho is not only connected here to that earlier scene, but he might also be well connected to Syriaca and that he might well be Syriaca's husband. Because here he mm. is with a whore and we know that, that Syriaca and her husband had had some marital issues. Uh, we also know that her husband isn't around in that place so much. And then that it would just be, if we're trying to just think of characters who are mentioned, who we don't seem to see, Syriaca's husband would be one of those. Yeah. And I just like that at the uh, the end of this post, um, here's what Michael wrote. He says, but it is true. High man from the province becomes low man at the vast metropolis. Probably can't even get in the door at the Archon's Palace of Nessus. Imagine <laughs> the expression on Syriaca's face when she and her guys, as commonality seamstress, bumps into his lustiness at the old gate. Um, so I think that's just kind of cool. Like if she does finally, you know, make it back, mm. uh, that she bumps into him and, and sees that. But the behavior, this Racho guy's behavior does seem to kind of match what Syriaca had said part of their problems were. So. Yeah. I don't know. It's a long leap and I'm not really sure what it does for the story other than just make connections between characters who we hear about, but think we don't actually see. And then they are. Well, we don't want, no one wants to give up Racho. <laughs> He's a perfect villain for Severian. He's a much better villain than <laughs> Agia. And, but he does get Severian engaged. I think that's the role he plays here. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
I agree. Racho takes off. Their driver doesn't even speculate. He takes off behind them. Severian speculates that the driver is going to expect a nice tip if he wins. Ajia shouts to the driver, faster! And Ajia tells Severian that if he has a dagger, he should use it to pretend he's forcing the driver to do it. We haven't seen traffic cops, but apparently they do have them. Severian says, why are you doing this? A question we all have considered. And she's, which, <laughs> like you said, she says it's a test. And uh, a test? A test, Feta? Uh, a test of what? That's actually the same question that I asked all throughout Earth of the New Sun, by the way. <laughs> she says she wants to see if everyone will believe that with his cloak, he's an armager in costume. And Racho's reaction proved that they will. Oh, good. <laughs> and anyway, she's convinced that they're going to win. She says, I know this driver and his team's fresh. The other's been carrying that whore for half the night. Now, Severian seems to be aware of the tradition of this sort of challenge, that the girl gets the winning. If they lose, he'll give his chrysos to Racho, who will give it to the prostitute, which, you know, he doesn't have. And Agia will expect the chryso if they win. So the only upside to Severian is the chance of humiliating Racho, which turns out to be plenty of motivation. Also, Severian says, speed and the fact that he'll soon die in the duel made him more reckless than he had ever been in his life. So he takes out Terminus S and he makes shallow cuts in the running animal's skins. It's long enough to reach them. And the burning of the sweat in their wounds makes them run even faster. A little quick thinking professional torture. Yeah. Um, use your own sweat. To, <laughs> yeah, you would. I one know little how thing that bugs me a little bit, but I don't know what to make of it, is that when she's saying, besides we win, I know this driver and his team's fresh, the other guy has been carting that whore for half the night. So does she actually know? Like, has she been out watching who's going around or she knows this woman? But it just means, no, it could be just something she's made up on the spot of, oh, the other guy's vehicle is tired. Um, but it's just an odd thing mm -hmm. to say that she knows who's been driving in the taxis all night long. Yeah. You get the idea. She does know about yeah. who the cabs are and who is not. But if that's what we believe. <laughs> so I want to, I've got some more <laughs> curiosities earth. This is before we're done here. So now they're driving like maniacs through pedestrians, through narrow streets, quote, mothers clasping their children as they fled soldiers vaulting on their spears to the safety of windowsills. They're still behind though, but Racho has to clear the path and Severian's way is clear. So the second place is still last place. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Severian writes, quote, our driver sent the onagers hurtling up a flight of broad Chalcedony steps, more Chalcedony, mm -hmm. marbles and monuments, pillars and pilasters seem thrown at our faces. We crashed through the green wall of a hedge as high as a house overturned a cartload of comfits, comfits are fruit confections, dove through an arch and down a stair wound in half a turn. And we're in the street again without ever knowing whose patio we had violated. A baker's sheep-drawn cart is walking in the middle of the road, and both carts, side by side now, rush on past on either side of the baker's cart. 
Severian's rear wheel hits the cart and fresh bread showers the streets. Agia is knocked against Severian, which he kind of likes. He puts his arm around her. Severian compares the women he has had before now, mm-hmm. <laughs> as he's going to do. He says, I had clasped women so before, that often, and hired bodies in the town. There was new sweetness in this born of cruel attraction Agia held for me. Cruel attraction. Now, you know, here's something. Severian never went back to House Azure. Mm-hmm. He says he did have other prostitutes. Or did he? Because Severian said he gave his money, gave his share of the money that Gerlois gave them to Rosha. So, you know, perhaps this is not second Severian's memory. Could be. Could be. I will admit there is, it could just be a fancy way of saying, you know, the, the Thekla Kybit was one was a hired body and that hired bodies you know yes it's plural but he could just be kind of referring to that Mm. it's possible but i also like yeah i like that point now now another way to read this too is that this is one of those places where severian is not remembering things differently but actually editing what he had told us before and this is kind of that where that unreliable thing gets thrown around more than that he flat out lies but instead what he'll do is he'll start to establish that like when he first says you know that it seems like he and Thecla never did anything but as time goes on he talks about you know not just one time but you know many Thecla often right you know um yeah but he's not as not being a journeyman I don't does he receive a salary good question I don't I don't think so I somehow I just kind of doubt it which case you know how does he get the money to hire prostitutes but you're right. It That's could true. be that he's just, it's just the one at the house azure and he's conflating it to more, but yeah. So, but Asia, when he puts his arm around her, Asia says, I'm glad you did that. I hate men who grab me. And then he cover, she covers his face with kisses. Racho takes a road called the twisted way and their driver is positive. They're going to win now. He'll just take a shortcut through the commons and they'll win by a hundred L that's uh, 350 feet or about 115 meters. They go through a gate with shrubbery barrier on either side. Oops. <laughs> Someone put a giant building here. It's the Pellerines cathedral, which is made of silks. It's as big as the great keep in the Citadel. And now they're inside it. It's dimly lit. It smells like hay. The driver has been knocked off the cab or he's jumped. It's dusty inside. You can see crooked pillars that look like painted wood. Lamps, mere points of light that hang over 20 yards above them. It's huge. Far above the lamps, a mini colored roof rippled and snapped in the wind. Other than the altar, it's completely empty inside and very roomy. He quote, no interior walls or stairs or furniture of any kind. They drive directly into the altar as large as a cottage and dotted with blue lights. It's constructed of battens, fragments of thin wood covered in gold leaf and set with turquoise stones and violet amethysts. I don't know if you remember when you first read this, but I 
can distinctly remember not having caught that what was going on and just being for the rest of this chapter just confused it's like wait what a minute ago they were in the street now they're inside a building and i finally you know it kind of hit afterwards like oh it's like a tent um but the when you first read this the way wolf reads it is or writes is so i think cool because he tells you um in some ways literally what happens but then also he he does it in such a way, which is just enough to not be straightforward. Like he said, you know, the driver tried to, there, there was a building, we hit its side. It gave like right. the fabric of a dream. Well, it gave like the fabric of a dream because it is fabric, right? Right. But the way that he says it, it gave like the fabric of a dream. And we were in a cavernous space, dimly lit and smelling of hay. That sentence is insane. If you don't know that it's a tent. Right. <laughs> yes. You're like, we hit the side of the building. It gave way. And then we're in a massive space, you know, dimly lit. So it's just a surreal sentence. Um, if- it's not prose, right? It's more like a. It's more like poetry. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that that fabric of a dream, you know, is definitely there. But I also like how in it's so wolf to also put that word in there, which is just literally what's going on. Fabric, you know, it's like they mm-hmm. cut through. I just think that's so cool that that he'll do things like that. But yeah, so I remember just being totally, absolutely confused, and then you know trying to find out well where. Even though it says we crashed into the altar, you know if you're just reading on, it's almost like I don't really you know. But what altar? <laughs> Wait, why is there an altar here? Because we don't yeah. know it's a church. You're just like, what? yeah. So so again, yeah, I've I've moved things around some of the descriptions around to put them at the front, yeah. but a lot of those you're not going to get until much later. So it's actually sparser. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just such a well-written part to be as confusing, I think, as the actual experience probably was. Yeah. So, yeah. So as they're headed toward the altar, Ajia shrieks and quote, there was a confusion of flying objects, impossible to describe the sense of everything whirling and tumbling and never colliding as in the chaos before creation. The ground seemed to leap at me. It struck with an impact that set my ears humming. I had been holding Terminus Est, I think, while I flew through the air, but she was no longer in my hand. When I tried to get up to look for her, I had no breath and no strength. The ground of the temple is covered in straw, Mm -hmm. spread everywhere in an endless yellow carpet like the field of a giant after harvest. So. I have to ask, let's play that music. <laughs> Curiositas Urthus. Could this be why Asia challenged Racho to the race? As you know, uh, I put away recently put away conspiracies of the Hyros manipulating Severian. But now maybe I'm a little bit back. For a while, I twiddled with, you know, you know, maybe first Severian is manipulating his younger self through Asia. But that's problematic. And not just because it might cause Severian to explode if he gets a little too close to himself. But all this could be seen as quite contrived. It could be. Um, I just think that... that- for the things to happen the way they do would take such 
luck because they'd have to, I mean, she didn't tell the guy where to go, right? She didn't tell the driver where to go. He took a, a, a turn. He's like, I know this way down here. Then when they crash into it, the fact that they ha- actually crash straight into the altar um, is a good bit of luck would be for that. And then for Ajia to be able to know where the claw is, pick it up and hide it, and then, you know, stash it on Severian all in the short amount of time that it happens. That's, that's a lot. Well, that kind of speed is part of what makes me think this whole thing is contrived. Obviously the, the driver has to be in on it. Yes. But if this is a big temple, and you know, even though the altar is big, the temple is the the, the cathedral is bigger still. And, and yet, they crashed into the temple and managed to hit the altar. So the idea I'm having is maybe this is a plan to get the claw into Severian's possession. Is a plan to return to Severian the symbol, which he doesn't need to heal or resurrect, but which might be seen as a gift to him or as a way to improve him. The point is that the that this whole thing is incredibly fortunate for Severian. Mm-hmm. If you're going to imagine heroes or the first Severian lurking in the side behind the curtains, manipulating him, this is a moment where he seems as manipulated as anywhere else. I guess it depends because I think actually the claw may be something that messes with all of the conspiracy theories, whether that's, whether it's a high rose behind the scenes or first Severian. In other words, I feel like the, and, and so this is just sort of a running, a running assumption on my part, even with everything else that the high rose know, and that we can guess maybe about first Severian, the claw always seems to be an anomaly, right? Like the, the high duels don't really know what to make of the claw. Um, Baldander certainly thinks it's just a trinket. And if first Severian was there, then, you know, the claw didn't exist for, for first Severian in our, the way that we're talking right. about things. So what that means though, is that it does, first of all, when I first figured out what was going on in this chapter, it seems to me like one of the clearest places where if you want to say that Severian is living out some sort of, you know, predestined, not by a person, but possibly by destiny itself or something or the increate, you know, this is the kind of thing where you can say, yeah, chance is exactly how the increate could work and, and put the Mm. claw into his hands. And I feel like that's, that's probably where I'm going to lean more often with this, that the claw is something from outside. I mean, a lot like the outsider that, that no matter, even if the high rows are, working to get Severian there. They were working in a way that didn't necessarily take the claw into account because eventually what the claw does is it kind of, you know, it breaks a lot of rules. It lets Severian seem to have the powers that he's going to have when he's the new son before he's the new son. But does he, I mean, he doesn't need the claw. He, he resurrects Triscally, right? Yeah. I mean, we've got, well, that's what we, what that's what I mean. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of questions that come up about it, but uh, figuring out how the claw actually fits into all the other theories, whether it's first Severian or, or whether it's the high rose or, or just straight up what Malrubius says, the claw still seems 
to me outside of that because it breaks a lot of the rules that all the various other rules that people have set up for the story do. And so I don't know yet. I mean, I want to I want to wait till we really get to seeing some things where where Severian's having the claw and and working on it. But yeah. I don't know. My my sense is that this is one of the the strongest places where the story is suggesting that Severian has some kind of you know he has to happen destiny outside of time. You know, <laughs> he has to. You know, he's that he's being. Yeah, he's the fate is is putting him here, and it's forces that are beyond even maybe the Hyrule's control that are are giving giving him there. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, is this sort of god working through Severian or something like that? Um that uh just with everything else in the book, this is the one place where <laughs> the I mean anything associated with the claw seems to me to smack of that idea a little mm. bit. Um but I'm not I'm not wedded to that absolutely because I also think that like there's a lot to say for the first Severian theory and you know, I've always wanted to know well how are the hieroduels and hierogrammets connected to the claw? Like, are they responsible for it? Because I feel like earth of the new sun doesn't give a good explanation for how the claw worked. Like, why did he, why did he need the claw? If he didn't need the claw, like why, you know what I mean? Like why, why was the claw? Well, why does he carry that claw? Yeah. Yeah. Why does it, if he doesn't need it, then, then what is it? And there, there are tons of answers we can come up with, but I feel like that's one thing earth of the new sun never comes right out and says, so, well, I think that something that's never really explained is why it glows, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and I guess it has to do with the fact that it's got Severian's blood on it. Yeah. So, but well, there's more about that later, I suppose. But, but as far as what happens here, yeah, I don't know. I just still have a real hard time seeing how someone could set up this set of circumstances. Um, well, to get there, and I know, I know. We have the same reaction to the same thing, being like, "Well, no, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. why it should be." You know, no, I get it, I get it. Um, but uh, yeah, the timing would have to be so right. The thing, the details would have to be so right that she would fall down next to where the claw actually was, or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get inside, she get it. Well, she actually, there is something else that happens at this part. Right. So the Viaker is smashed. There's one dead Onager in the wreckage. The other is apparently nowhere in sight. And Agia calls out torturer and Severian asks if she's okay. And she says alive anyway, but they have to get away right away. Too bad. The Onager's dead. She says, because they could have ridden it away. And she says her right leg is hurt. So he'll have to carry her. There's a fire starting in the straw. Severian says that it's only just starting, which says to me that Agia was completely capable of putting it out. So, once again, did she start the fire? <laughs> she's she's there. She's got the claws. She's going to start a fire in order to cover their tracks. Yeah, and that makes sense, yeah. honestly. That, like, if she thinks she's just grabbed this jewel, even if she doesn't know that it's the claw of the conciliator, if she just thinks she grabbed... I, she must know. She must know. I would guess. She knows so thing i mean unless other people she's gonna have a well severian surprised that it's a gem instead of you know because he doesn't really know right what it is i mean but, it, obviously everyone everyone looks at it and thinks it's a gem yeah so it, you know you she doesn't have to be all knowing to know that it's to believe that it's something it's worth something right oh yeah oh yeah and so it does make sense that she had started the fire as a way to 
to cover up whatever's going on. Yeah, exactly. So Severian is limping himself. This tent was called the Cathedral of the Pelerines or sometimes the Cathedral of the Claw. And the reason for that is, of course, because it's where they house the Claw of the Conciliator. This is the third time so far that we've mentioned the Claw. The first was a random mention in Chapter 4 with Triskali, and the second was when they were talking about the procession of the curators in Chapter 6. Although Severian is familiar with the new son, he will stipulate that he never received any real religious upbringing. He's not going to pray until Citadel of the Autarch. Mm-hmm. So he has no idea who the Pelerines are. And Agia starts to explain. The Pelerines are a band of priestesses who travel the continent. They never... And then she stops because here comes a group of people dressed in red clothes. What do you think she was going to say? I I can re- seem to remember that I once had a theory what she has said, but I can't remember what it is. I feel like Severian now. Um, they never, let me think about that. And maybe I can come up with it. Say, something. yeah. Cause I don't, I it's, it's one of those things where if he had just said they, and then broke it off there, but he, he went on to have her say never. And so that makes me, but I'm not sure. It could be, they never, they never let anyone in their temple, in their cathedral. It could have some been something they, as simple as they never stay in one place for very long or something like that. Oh, they they never stay in one place. That's a, that's a good one because they are a traveling mm-hmm. a band of priests. Mm-hmm. But that's they no travel fun. the continent. <laughs> that would make sense. That's no, fun. <laughs> no, that's pretty good. They never stay in one place. That actually does fit. A pelerine, by the way, is a short cape that drapes over the shoulders. So you know, maybe that's what pelerines wear. But the word literally means pilgrim. Maybe because that's what French pilgrims wore. But remember that Severian thought that he was disguised as a pilgrim mm-hmm. in his giant mm-hmm. mantle. The men coming have their heads shaved and they carry shining gilded scimitars. A very tall woman who Severian says might be an exultant is carrying Terminus Est in its sheath. She's wearing a hood with a narrow cape with long tassels. And I got to say, I, this has no bearing on anything, but the whole time I've been reading it this last time around, I totally see them looking like handmaids <laughs> from Handmaid's yeah, Tale. So I, know, I don't know yeah. why, but I always, that's just what, that's the image that pops in. Uh, yeah, I think I've always, since I, I, I read Handmaid's Tale before I read mm-hmm. this. So yeah, I was always thinking, oh, a little red outfits. Agia starts to say, our animals ran wild, holy Domnicelli. I think it would be Domnicelli. Holy Domnicelli. That's the title for a pelerine, I suppose, as opposed to Chatelaine. A Chatelaine is Mm -hmm. mistress of a castle. Uh, Domnicelli is Latin for a nun. Severian says, there was much beauty in her, but it was not the beauty of women who quench desire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, the Domnicelli doesn't talk to Severian. She says, this belongs to the man carrying you. Tell him to set you on your feet and take it. You can walk a, a little. Do as she says, torturer. And so it's the first thing she says is like, I know the truth of what's going on. You know, like she can see through. You know? Yeah, well, she says, uh, but, but Asia is calling him torturer over mm-hmm. and over. And oh, I assume yeah. she hopes yeah. that this is going to intimidate the yep. pelerines. But, the, but she, yeah, she says, don't you know his name? 
He says, he told me, but I've forgotten. <laughs> Zavarian gives his name. He's studying Agia with one hand and he takes Terminus S with the other. And the exultant Pellerine, well, we don't really know she's an exultant. She's very tall. Mm-hmm. She maybe, maybe she's a Kybit. She says, use it to end quarrels, not to begin them. Severian tells her that the straw is on fire. She's not concerned. The sisters and servants are stomping it out right now. She says servants, but she really means slaves. The men have mm-hmm. sold themselves into slavery to the Pellerines. She looks back and forth between Severian and Agia. She says they only found Severian's sword in the wreckage. Now that they've returned the sword, she asks that the two of them return anything they found that doesn't belong to them. <laughs> She's asking about the clock conciliator, of course. Agia took it. She slipped it into Severian's saber tash when he was carrying her. But Severian assumes she's talking about the amethysts in the altar. They both say they didn't find anything. The men ready their weapons for a fight. But the very tall pellerine just stands there, looking back and forth at each of them. And then she calls Severian to approach her. He's three or four steps away. He walks to her. He's tempted to draw his sword to protect himself from the men, but he doesn't. She takes his wrists and looks in his eyes, just like Robert De Niro in Meet the Fockers, right? (laughs) She's a human um, lie detector. He says that her eyes were calm and in the strange light seemed hard as barrels. That's, That's, of course, a type of gem. She says, there's no guilt in him. And this, by the way, is what Pilate says of Jesus when the Sanhedrin demand that he condemn him. What's interesting is that he actually does have the claw in his possession, but he doesn't know it. And that's that's kind of the, the point there, right? That, yeah, even though he's doing the crime, his intention and his knowledge of, of what he's doing is what she's evaluating here. So... You got to, when she says there's no guilt in him, of course, you got to back up to everything else. Like, does she mean just about the claw? Yeah, probably. But it's such a grand statement, especially like you said, when it, when it falls back to the biblical illusion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, we know he's a torturer, right? <laughs> so there would be some guilt there. Um, we know he's killed a man. seems like there should be some guilt there. Um, he's helped, even though he let Thecla come out, or, or he saved her a better fate, you know, he was still responsible for that. And he's felt guilty about it the whole time. So for her to, so to have a holy figure who seems to have some kind of supernatural insight, some, whether or not she really does, I don't know. But, and then for Wolf to have that character make this kind of biblical illusion by saying that he has no guilt. What do you think? Is that actually Wolf saying at this point, Severian is not a bad person, even though he's doing bad things. No, 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 of course not. He's, I think, you know, when you, nobody speaks 100% comprehensively Mm -hmm. about anything, everything is context. Every, everything you say can only be understood in context. And in this case, she's, she's looking to see whether he's hiding something from her and he's not because he doesn't know he has something to hide. And I mean, I don't know what uh, what Agia is is up to, but she when she t- looks into Agia, she sees that she's hiding something mm-hmm. specific. 
and that's what she cares about. And it's not, it's not, it's not some. I suppose it's possible that if Severian was just racked with general guilt about many things, that she might be able to see <laughs> that. But at this time, it, all it is about is about who took the claw, whether they took and taken something that they don't want them to know about. In fact, the slave is still not convinced. He says, "You're mistaken, Domicelli," but she insists. And she calls Agia to her. And Agia limps to within a yard of her, but then she stops. So the Pellerine walks up to her and takes her risks. And then immediately she gives the other women the look. And they grab her, grab Agia's gown, and they pull it over her head. They don't find anything. And one woman says, I think this is the day prophesied. Her hands, Agia's hands, are crossed over her chest. And she says, these pellerines are insane. Everyone knows it. The tall woman says, return her rags. The claw has not vanished in living memory, but it does so at will, and it would be neither possible nor permissible for us to stop it. One of them says, we may find it in the wreckage still, mother. And another says that they should make these two pay for the damage. And a man says, let's kill them. But the tall woman just walks away. She looks like she's gliding when she walks. The women follow her and the men back away. Agia won't answer any more questions. Get me out of here, Severian, and I'll tell you. It isn't lucky to talk about them in their own place. They walk through a tear in the wall, and that's it. So. <laughs> so Agia pulled it off. Very, that's a, Agia... That is one action-packed chapter. I find yeah. it improbable. You know, if this were if this were dying earth, I wouldn't find this scene the the improbability of this scene and this chapter so frustrating. But, you know, I just I don't necessarily think Wolf works that way. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he does sometimes. It could be for just for the moment, but I guess I still feel like the reason for that is more something because the claw is still something special even without with everything yeah. else going on i still feel like the claw is it's doing that so um but it could be certainly wow you're a believer in the claw I, apparently i am right now so at least in this chapter um but it's you know but it also could just be luck <laughs> i mean <laughs> we, we couldn't count that out either yeah so one other thing too just a very small point borski actually finds a connection between this domicelli and Thecla's friend Domnina, the the girl who actually goes through Father Neri's mirrors mm. or actually sees them for various reasons. But I think the main one is just the Domnina and Domnicelli. So he finds that. So that one, I don't know that that one's worth an actual whole curious to search this, but just a point. Um, and other people do, I think, I remember them. I didn't actually go pull them all up, but, but wonder if this Domnicelli is one of the other pelerines that we hear about, especially from later on in, um, from the Lazaret in the Citadel. Oh. But no, for, for what's going on here, the thing I think is kind of interesting is when the Domicelli says that the claw has its own purposes. Mm -hmm. And even though they don't trust Agia, they trust the claw. And so that's interesting point where what they're doing is saying, okay, we know you've probably stolen something somehow, or we don't trust you. But she, the Domicelli actually then says, and it may actually be for a good reason in the long yeah. run, um, which is a remarkable amount of faith, I think. But, and, and oddly enough, 
shows a puts a lot of power in that symbol. You know, <laughs> symbols make us. She's letting the claw sort of actually making an inan or letting an inanimate object make some decisions for. Her. <laughs> um, but it's another point there where uh, you know, just to talk about sort of fate or predestination or forces beyond her control, that could be you know, like I'm saying, might be what what gets Severian to the claw, and it's also what the Pellerine is saying how the claw works. Uh, that it 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 works through things that seem that are mysterious ways. <laughs> <laughs> when it wants to disappear, it disappears. I suppose this thing. So one thing, as she is when she's forced to just to take off all her clothes and and look there in the middle of everything, that total lack of of modesty. Even the pelerines don't seem to be very. I don't know kind to, to yeah. Aji. I remember thinking that that was always such an odd moment here because I would have thought that, you know, nuns of all people would, you know, have at least let her go behind a curtain or something like that. And there's the, I mean, there's the slaves, the men with the scimitars just right there. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a terribly threatening moment. Well, actually I noticed in this time that she has remarkable modesty based on what I'm used to seeing from her. Mm -hmm. She's standing there. They take off her gown and she's standing there with her arms crossed. Mm, she covers her breasts. Because he'll specifically mention in the next chapter how, you know, at a certain point she stopped holding up the ripped dress that covered one of her breasts. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and which is, could easily be like, she's trying to get Severian interested or something like that. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah. So, but I've always thought that the Donicelli was a really interesting character because it's one of those moments in the book where I can't decide if we're supposed to think that her insight is supernatural, is just personal. Um, is she really intuitive or does she just really have no idea? You know, she's just kind of right. guessing with her feelings. Uh, but it's also kind of like those moments where with the witches and the Cumaean, are they doing magic? Are they doing some other kind of higher technology? We don't know, but it's just one of those, those moments in the book where what counts as magic is questionable or what counts as a supernatural thing is hard to figure out sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's going to come up over and over again too, not just with these other things, but with the claw itself and, and earth of the new sun doesn't really answer that question. I feel like. <laughs> in some ways, but that's a much bigger issue. What is magic in the book? Is there magic in the book at all? Right. But yeah, so very confusing. And especially the first time you read it. And I remember for a long time going back and trying to figure out if Wolf had ever signaled the moment where she slips it, slips the claw into his saber tash. And I don't think he does. I think he just no. he completely leaves that for later. It's something you fill in the gap. So there's no way you could have known uh, from reading right. the chapter. So if you have any ideas about whether or not Agia was actually planning this whole thing or whether it was first Severian or whether it was just some kind of divine providence interacting with everything, let us know. Or if there's something that we just have completely misunderstood or a different reason for all of this craziness going on in this chapter, let us know. You can get in touch with us through email, rereadingwolf at gmail.com, on Twitter, on Facebook page for reading wolf page which is where most of the action happens um, or on the subreddit <laughs> and on instagram and instagram yes where there's loads <laughs> of good stuff coming up so and more or apparently on youtube that's right all right so thanks a lot guys and we'll see you next time as we start to head towards the gardens yeah.
himself full. He don't know what fear's about. He do 130 mile an hour, smiling at the camera with a toothpick in his mouth. He got a girl back home, name of Dixie Dawn, but he got honeys all along the way. Then you order hit and screaming for the dirt track demon in a 57 Chevrolet. He got a tattoo on his arm, I said, baby, he got another one that just say, hey. But every Sunday afternoon, he is a dead track, even in a fifth of seven Chevrolet. up a discussion on the first Severian that in a win about that. Oh, okay. Good. I think that'll do. <laughs> that'll do pig.